Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today on the SASPod, we introduce a brand new faculty member at Stanford. Part Shiel is an assistant professor in the Department of History, and I will be asking him all about his research and teaching. He received his MPhil from JNU in Delhi and his PhD from the University of Cambridge in England. Part, welcome to Stanford and welcome to the SASPod. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, Lalita, very much for having me on SASPod. I'm very well. I'm both exhausted and from my move from Cambridge to Palo Alto, but also I'm very excited to be in Stanford finally. Fantastic. Yes, moving, especially internationally, is exhausting. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with the process and how tiring it is. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Um, can you start us off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your research? Um, so, um, well, I'm primarily a labor historian um, and uh, I, I trained in India and in Cambridge and um, I was uh, a postdoc at Trinity College before I came here. Um, my field of research is labor history, but unlike sort of conventional labor historians, I don't look at workers sort of in factories and mills, but I look at workers sort of at the you know, lowest rungs of the state apparatus uh, or what can be called government labor. So um, in particular, I work on sort of police constables and village watchmen in colonial Eastern India in the 19th and sort of early 20th century until sort of the period of decolonization. Um, so you can sort of say that, you know, <laughs> you can sort of tell that uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm uh, sort of a, I work on police forces, but I'm not really a police historian. <laughs> the whole point of my work is to use labor history to, um, to see how we can uh, understand the workers who uh, sort of animate this thing that we then perceive as um, the state apparatus. So, yeah. Um, what informs your research then? Because if you're if you're more looking at the labor side of thing uh, things rather than the kind of the governmental side of things, um, do do you work with in 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 the field of subaltern studies or social movements or, or what are what are some of the influences that you that you work with? Yeah, I mean, I think anybody who's a labor historian is sort of uh, by definition kind of um, uh, you know connected uh, to social movements because the very discipline itself is kind of um, an extension sometimes of the labor movements, uh, you know, in the world. Um, so uh, 
labor history as a as a discipline often sort of is deeply informed by the questions thrown up by labor movements and i would say that as a uh, historian who's uh, sort of trained in south asia and also i've taught in south asia for several years um, my work is also informed by um, you know a, a deep connection with social movements i mean in some ways in in, in south asia you see uh, history writing can never be professionalized in the sort of purely professional manner. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, um, it's it's always connected to uh, people's movements and social movements. And those are the questions that um, animate the intellectual uh, uh, projects that, uh, that often um, are explored. So in some ways, I'm both a labor historian professionally, but I, I'm, you know, all of us who work on South Asian history, on uh, working class histories are deeply sort of connected to uh, the questions thrown up by working class struggles and labor struggles um, in South Asia now, as well as in the past. So, um, yeah. Do you see yourself then, I mean, do you, do you see labor history as being connected to activism or are these still two quite separate strands? Uh, I think I think one uh, one needs to separate the two mm -hmm. because um, you know activism is is uh, is sort of people who are working with labor unions, with people who are on the ground fighting struggles. Those are um, uh, you know you know those are people from whom we learn as historians. So in some ways, the historical project is, uh, or let's say, the profession of labor history. Is is an academic, uh, you know, sort of a project, and it it. Uh, I wouldn't say that I am an activist of any kind. I, I think what I do is to learn from the experience and the learnings of activists, mm. and um, and and that's also the flavor broadly of South Asian history writing generally. And this, I think, it's important to uh, acknowledge because we are <laughs> discussing this in the sense of South Asia, mm -hmm. that for historians in South Asia, you see the um, most of the uh, you know, significant questions, whether it was from the period of you know, uh, 60s when nationalism was being debated very uh, you know, uh, significantly in the field to now, um, you know the the inequities of the world we grow up in um the struggles against those inequities sort of a constant backdrop and shaping the intellectual project but they're not sort of in some ways um you know just uh, an agenda being carried forward in the intellectual terrain the task of the intellectual is slightly different mm -hmm. you see we have our own equipment we have our own rules of evidence and logic and research on the basis of which we uh, you know you know frame our questions go about our investigation so in some ways while we learn from activism the the toolkit of the historian of the social scientist is quite distinct and our contribution to the world of uh, you know wider social movements is also therefore distinct <laughs> understood um you mentioned when we spoke when we spoke before that you but you, you do see confronting inequity as a pedagogical tool can you say more about that i mean having taught in in, in india in delhi for several years i've, I've taught in very unequal classrooms mm -hmm. classrooms where students come with tremendous amounts of privilege 
but also students who come from um, the lack of such privilege and 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 the the journeys that some students make in the classroom is is tremendous and um, and as a teacher it's very important for us to therefore um, you know take on that challenge of understanding um, the different starting points from which students are accessing um, this you know in knowledge production industry as it were which is uh, um, you know which is largely carried out in English a language that itself uh, you know is, is a struggle for many students so um, if you were teaching in India <laughs> you know there is just no way of getting around <laughs> dealing with inequity in the classroom and if you were to truly engage with it then you have to understand the um, the ways in which social movements have um, have uh, responded and struggled against those inequities and how uh, the learnings of those social movements can then be incorporated into the classroom. So when you are dealing with a classroom which is, you know, with gender divide, with caste divide, you know, you have to go towards thinking about what are the questions raised by women's movement? Mm -hmm. What are the questions raised by the queer movement? What are the questions raised by the Dalit movement, and uh, how can we, as you know, class, as as teachers inside a classroom, um, you know, bring those questions and address those inequities and um, transform this whole, this, you know, this whole exercise <laughs> in in humanities education into something mm -hmm. that is truly emancipatory, is truly in, you know empowering, um, rather than alienating, which it often is, you know, given. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm thinking that in the, especially in the in the more elite setting, um, there might be an assumption that students from more um, elite backgrounds in India because of access to English and in the United States because perhaps having had access to private education, which is considered, I don't want to say better, but and maybe by some considered better, but maybe um, on a different level. Um, than other forms of education, um, we might assume or one might assume that people that come from more privilege have more privilege in that classroom as well. But if you're talking about social movements uh, and labor, then that may be a wholly incorrect assumption. How do you, how do you deal with that in this elite setting? I mean, I also taught in Cambridge <laughs> before this, which was a fairly elite setting, and, right. uh, and it was. Well, how did uh, that play out? Uh, and it was an interesting experience. I think, uh, and as you're rightly saying, that there is tremendous amount of privilege to be found even in classrooms in in South Asia as well, and mm -hmm. in India, um, in Delhi particularly. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the question of uh, inequity is um, the question of. Uh, um, you know, social contradictions that we are all faced by, uh, face, you know, uh, faced with gender, caste, class, are not just questions to be dealt with by those who are disempowered. <laughs> you know, it is uh, it, uh, it is not something that you know, women's studies is not meant only for women, <laughs> or you know, uh, gender studies is not meant, or queer studies is not meant only for queer people to study. It is meant for transforming the, you know both the wider agenda of the discipline that we are dealing with but also uh, you know um it's 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 a different journey for somebody who comes with, from privilege 
but it's it's also a journey that they have to go through. So if if I'm I I, I was born a man, and and if I'm going into a um, um, in a women's studies class, a feminist theory class, it will be a journey for me to, you know, uncover all the layers of, uh, you know, um, you know, toxic masculinity that was imbibed in me as I grew up. So, you know, if I have done feminist theory in my training, then that has actually um, transformed my awareness of the privilege that I have. So in some ways, I think it's, it's even more important sometimes to, uh, to bring social movement questions in classrooms where there is a lot of privilege because mm -hmm. that is really where we need to um, transform the question and also make people aware that knowledge production has its sort of intellectually autonomous um, you know, training and rigor, but along with that, it, it operates in a world of inequality mm -hmm. and, and, and the ways in which um, their, you know, that, you know, their, their work um, will be um, will exist in the world, how they will compete with their colleagues, you know, what are the challenges that their, their colleagues might have, you know, so, um, yeah, I, th I think there's much work to be done in classrooms. Yeah, privilege. no, totally, and, and, and I, I appreciate your point that, that the real work uh, lies in making people aware of their own privilege, wherever that resides, but then, uh, in my experience, what happens in the classroom when um, students from privileged backgrounds become much more aware of their privilege. Um, this sometimes leads to uh, then an impetus to somehow rectify that. Uh, and, and we all know the student who quote unquote wants to make a difference. Uh, and I wonder how, how you think we should negotiate that because I haven't figured it out yet. It's so problematic. Yeah, the impetus to save the world is- right. <laughs> That one. <laughs> you know, is, is um... See, if somebody is going to set out to save the world, they're going to save the world. You and I can't kind of stop the saving of the world, but it's just all that I think we can contribute as uh, teachers is to um, make students aware that um, the response to, um, uh, first of all, that the response to the problems in the world, the social contradictions that we are studying historically is, is um, um, is not just about suddenly becoming the Messiah who will come and you know deliver the disempowered from uh, their their uh, condition. The fact that that trope itself, that framework itself, is a product of these structures of um, um, oppression that we are part of, and and uh, you know this um, this way the savior mentality has itself to be unearthed. So in some ways we have to. Uh, we have to both study the social contradictions, but at the same time, the study has to go inwards of the ways in which we are responding to them. Our responses, our intuitive responses are deeply structured by mm -hmm. our class and gender and you know, caste backgrounds and the way we frame um, uh, the problem. And that itself has to be an investigation, which is not just the investigation of the object of study, but the uh, the subject who's studying and humanities. That's that's everything. If you you can't be uh, uh, you can't get anywhere if you have a blindness towards um, the the historical conditioning that has shaped your style of framing the problem. Mm -hmm. so. 
Tell us more about your own uh, research and on labor history. And of course, I'm particularly curious about the, the police constable who lived <laughs> so large. It's when, when you talk about labor history and social movements and um, being influenced by uh, women's studies, queer studies, uh, the police constable doesn't immediately <laughs> come to mind. So can you say more, please? So uh, the police constable, so it, first of all, one thing to understand with historical research is that sometimes these are, um, uh, you know, sort of a series of accidents that happen in the archive, one thing leading right. to another, and you end up with a project that you never thought you were going to do. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, and it is sometimes, uh, sometimes even I uh, wonder, you know, why did I end up studying the police constable as a figure? Um, I mean, there are intellectually two different sort of um, um, questions through which I enter this project. One is, of course, uh, my interest in um, state formation. And that is uh, an important other half of this labor history project. The other is, of course, exploring a more unconventional kind of um, worker. A worker whose uh, whose labor is not easily um, you know sort of it doesn't fit quite neatly within the frameworks of um, uh, you know surplus extraction that we are familiar with when we see an industrial worker when we see a worker in the informal sector there is a certain conceptual frame that immediately gets activated in our mind about how to analyze this labor relation but it's uh, far more complicated when we try to understand what's happening with workers inside the state apparatus um, because they seem to occupy a very strange position where they are working but at the same time there is a way in which they are being constructed outside of the working class um, by the state apparatus itself um, and um, the other uh, um, sort of therefore uh, the uh, question that this leads to is how does this then make us think about the state apparatus and one of the directions in which my research led me was to think of the state as a site of work where this whole laboring world sort of animates and brings into being this structure that we then um, um, perceive as the state as something that is an a, you know is the, you know carries the monopoly of violence is a source of violence and the police constable then suddenly all his in histories of policing that that's an instrument through which state violence is getting mediated mm -hmm. but my project sort of therefore tries to open up the life the laboring life of that instrument and is there a different way in which we understand state power for instance when we open up the laboring life of that uh, worker who is otherwise perceived as merely an instrument of state power. So for instance, to just give an example, it's uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is, is the question of orality within the state apparatus. And uh, one of the things that I realized in the course of my work was that in the late 19th century and well into the 20th century, a, a substantial section of the constabulary in Eastern India uh, were illiterate. And they had very few of them um, were lettered and and you know and that was also a very minimal kind of a condition and so that really raised the question about you know here are a whole bunch of in you know there's, there's a whole workforce that is meant to implement the law of the land and uh, they can't read that law mm 
Mm-hmm. So how, what's going on over here, right? Mm-hmm. How do they think of the law? These are the, this is where law is actually having its incidence on the ground, but it's mediated by a an entirely uh, unlettered um, uh, workforce. And one of the ways in which they were actually taught the law was through oral instruction. So there's evidence from, you know, Calcutta police where in the evening, a superior European official would make the constables memorize by rote the -hmm. law. Mm -hmm. Over here then what you find is really at the heart of the state apparatus, which we these days assume to be, you know, equivalent with uh, the power of the written word, the power of the document, the power of the official file and red tape and bureaucracy. The heart of this structure, there is an oral tradition that is mediating state power. Mm. And, and so then how do we actually start looking at the same violence that we were seeing, but now through the, the laboring lives of these workers and, and, and track the nature of that violence. So that's broadly the kind of project that I'm <laughs> sort of engaged in. It's very interesting. Um, and it's definitely, uh, you, you bring a lot more nuance to what one might assume when, when one reads about uh, your research, you know, the two lines. Uh, it's lovely talking to you and, and learning a little bit more about um, the kind of the depths that you go to and, and taking quite different angles than what one might assume. Um, nevertheless, to me, it seems still quite a colonial idea that, that oral history um, equals illiteracy. For instance, in my experience working with musicians in South Asia, the oral tradition is considered this, the quote unquote smart tradition, it's the correct tradition. Um, and when I was a student, I was only allowed to write things down because I was a foreigner. And there was this notion that <laughs> my brain just wasn't trained enough to be able to remember the bandishes, the songs I was working on. And so I was given kind of an accommodation, if you like, to write. So how does that sit with your description of the police as quote unquote illiterate? That, that's a very, very interesting question and I think the question of orality therefore has so much more um, uh, discussion uh, uh, that we need to have about its its, its structure. I mean in some ways uh, I agree with you entirely. What I'm saying is that the the fact that they are approaching the written word of the law through an oral tradition does not mean that they are confused about the law, but that they're bringing into their interpretation of the law a whole uh, previous world of knowledge, you know, and there are several instances where these things become uh, sort of um, slightly evident um, um, and and where their their previous understanding of what it means to, um, uh, to, uh, you know, be deferential to a superior through authorial orality sometimes. In a sense, one of the instances was that once a constable was, uh, you know, told to just go to the other district and fetch this, catch this guy, you know, who's supposed to have run away there. Except when the constable came back, he realized that he had no legal warrant at all. You see, now this is a very simple case of, uh, you know, you know, a rustic constable for, for an you know, official report. You know, who didn't know what the procedure was. But actually, if you think about it, there is a whole culture in which they he's perceiving the 
the the oral instruction as important enough as carrying weight enough now therefore one 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 can start sort of you know investigating what what is it that is going into this frame of of uh, uh, of the consciousness of this worker as they're engaging a new world of bureaucracy and written procedure and a, and a, and a more familiar world in which authority functioned differently mm. and uh, similarly there is an, an instance of you know <laughs> when the uh, them often behaving like uh, latials of zamindars. Zamindars used to have armed retainers called latials, mm -hmm. and sometimes the behavior of in riot control of the constables was quite indistinguishable from right. what the armed retainers of the landlords were supposed to be doing. So what you then realize is that this is not a case. And you know, in official reports, that will, this will be always narrated as you know, we have this rustic workforce and we have to keep training them. They're so bad and inefficient. But if you think about it, this is a kind of a, a, a different code, a cultural code that is getting animated within the, um, uh, because of this oral mediation of the written world. So orality therefore is, is yeah, you're very right. It's, it's a site of tremendous amount of uh, accumulated experience, mm -hmm. knowledge, conceptual frameworks that are being brought into play. So I completely take on board what you're saying. And I think the project for me is to understand how this, this dialogue, uh, this mediation of the oral and the written happens uh, in order to shape state power. It's so interesting. I look forward to reading more about it. Um, I'm still, I mean, also when you just describe the police as uh, being indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the from the Latias, it, it feels very modern as well, especially in the, the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, as researchers, I think it's almost impossible not to feel empathy of some sort, at least for the quote unquote subjects of our work, as we spend so much time with them. And so even in the archive, it becomes a relationship of sorts. But your work is on the police in many ways, uh, if not in all ways, the instrument of state-sponsored violence. How do you manage your emotions around that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that one thing that we need to understand is that, um, uh, first of all, the, the average police constable, both in my period and even today, is uh, not well paid hmm. right? and so uh and therefore it's uh, and particularly in my period it's it's a uh, i mean I, I i that which is what i can actually sort of confidently comment on the conditions of police work are um hmm. are, are quite bad so hmm. in some ways the violence that is emerging out of um uh, out of this apparatus is um, it's it's relaying a certain world of conditions of work. It is certainly state power. It is certainly often caste power because in in Eastern India, the upper caste recruitment was quite desired by the colonial state to bolster the power of the constabulary. It was caste power. It was state power, but it was also it was a combination of power and vulnerability. So, for instance, I have evidence of you know um, for a long time. Um, workers developing sores on their bodies, but not reporting to the hospital. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just sort of making, I mean, you know, you only get fragments from reports of these things. There aren't detailed reports about ordinary constables in the archives, but one can only imagine a, a workforce which 
you know, is concealing disease on the, in, in their bodies and going to work, you know, and, and then one can perhaps think about what that violence means. So I think one particular thing that needs to be done is to uh, also think about the conditions of work of, uh, um, of lower level mm. constabulary and, and the way that produces the violence. But, um, you know, I am, I'm not an anthropologist. Anthropologists um, who work definitely develop an empathy. I think for historians, it's, historians also do that. Uh, there's no way of escaping <laughs> We're going to get very many angry emails from historians saying, we have empathy too. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I mean, historians also do that. But for us, it's, it's a complicated affair because we are not witness to the utterance of the subject in on the face right we, we are actually searching for the subject through subject's voice through the mediation of official archive right and very rarely do we get an, a sort of a direct voice from the past and so for us it's a very complex uh, operation of weaning uh, away the conceptual uh, anchors of colonial archives and finding the voice and analyzing and sort of you know cross-checking whether it works and doesn't work. So I think um, um, while definitely one uh, generates an empathy, there are also structural questions that um, animate me. And I do think that the, the, the course of studying policing uh, can become merely a repeated story about police violence, mm. right? Uh, about how cruel the police is. And, um, and I think that is kind of an analytical dead end. I mean, you know, we don't need further research to say that, we know it, you know. What we need further research on is to understand the, the, the structure of that violence, the, the ways in which it's historically shaped, what are the conditions that are uh, generating this, uh, you know, is, is, I mean, one thing is to say that the police is not following the law, the letter of the law. But then that's just the simplest thing to uh, say because, and anybody can see that. Right. What we need to understand is that there are other structures through which this particular course of um, colonial uh, of colonial policing was inherited by post-colonial India, uh, and, and and that long history and its shaping needs to be investigated. So I think, I I do think that you know it's not a question of empathy so much as taking the next step in analysis of police. Mm. The point you make about um, the police workers um, going to work, uh, hiding uh, disease, concealing disease because they had to earn uh, is of course, has always been relevant, but has been particularly relevant uh, as we are making our way through this pandemic and has been relevant worldwide. It's not, uh, it's not a, only a particular region of the world where that has been the case. and. Um, so yeah, that's your your work continues to be modern. It's it's really what I'm hearing you say. Um, we have to move towards wrapping up, but I would love to hear a little bit about what you're planning to teach at Stanford. Uh, many of our students listen, and so uh, yeah, listen up, people. Here are some new classes coming your way, uh, which of course will all count towards the uh, South Asia minor. Uh, so yeah, tell us all about it. Uh, so. Uh... One of the uh, basic things that I wanted to do was to actually uh, set up um, uh, these two survey courses on South Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, in the first year, I'm offering the first uh, of it, 
One of them, the, the one that I'm offering in the fall is called The Structure of Colonial Power, uh, South Asia since the 18th century. And the second one, which will be offered in the next academic year, will be called Resisting Empire, um, uh, Popular Movements, Anti-Colonial Nationalism, and uh, Decolonization in South Asia. Um, as you can tell, these two uh, survey courses are analytically and uh, conceptually separated. The first one is really an investigation of the, the nature of the colonial encounter and the ways in which it has shaped both the structures of governance and structures of, um, you know, uh, uh, structures of uh, oppression in, in Indian society and structures of inequity. Um, in, in some ways, it's, it's a structural story, and that's why it's called the structure of colonial power. Right. Uh, and uh, the next uh, um, one is really a story of resistance. It's about how people uh, resist these structures um, and, and um, the course of uh, decolonization and um, how that shaped um, post-colonial South Asia. So um, these are the two survey courses, and the first one is coming up this fall. Okay. From that, in winter, I'm offering a seminar course called The Worlds of Labor in Modern India, mm -hmm. which is a, a, a seminar on uh, the field of uh, Indian labor history, a kind of a grounding training in the field of Indian labor history for those who are interested. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, and I also want to thank you for joining me on the Saspot today as you are getting ready for your new life in Palo Alto. Thank you so much, Lalita. It was wonderful to be here. And thank you so much. <laughs> it's been uh, it's been great learning more about your work. Um, as always, I want to thank Soham Shiva for creating the intro and the outro to the Saspod and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon.